Straight out of Philly, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from Palm Beach Atlantic University. When times are tough, where do you place your hope? Where do you place your trust that all things will be made well in the end? Do you place your assurance in God? Well, that probably depends on what you think God is like. In today's episode, I want to explore the classical doctrine of immutability, or the claim that God cannot change. I want to ask if immutability is necessary in order for God to be trustworthy in His promises. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate money to my Patreon account or my Ko-fi account. Any donation amount helps me out in so many ways, I really appreciate all the support that people have already offered. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear in the show, you can send me a message at rtmollins.com. Ready or not, here I am changing things up. Enjoy. I have been traveling across Europe lately. There's so many different stories that I want to share with you, but I feel the need to address a particular topic. We are living in times of upheaval. Putin's war in Ukraine continues to drag on, bringing the world economy down with it. As I've mentioned before in the show, the war started when I was still living in Finland. I told you about how scared I was and how my fear eventually went away. When I was back in Finland recently, things felt different. Finland is in the process of joining NATO, and they're also building a wall along the Russian border. The Russian population living in Helsinki has dramatically increased. So many Russians have been fleeing their home country, hoping to escape being sent off to an unjust war. Many in Eastern Europe are wondering how this war will end. Like, I mean, just how do we put a stop to this bloody thing? As I traveled across Europe this summer, I noticed a striking difference in the conversations compared to America. People in Europe, they're talking about very serious problems related to the war. They're expressing fears that Putin will weaponize the energy crisis. There's all sorts of chit-chat about the growing revolution in Iran, the death of a British queen, and then, of course, there was much ado about the scandal surrounding the Finnish prime minister dancing her heart out on a Friday night. Other than the dancing prime minister, much of the American politics looks like a joke in comparison. I watch American politicians continue to peddle absurd talking points so they can just, like, stick it to the other side. All while our own president just can't seem to find his way off a stage. The rising rate of violent crime across American cities greatly disturbs me. Since being in Philadelphia, I have been far too close to multiple fatal shootings, sometimes multiple shootings that are just unrelated to each other, in a single day. One thing is for certain, is that we are living in uncertain times. Quite frankly, I'm just tired of it. I long for stability and peace. And then I assume that many of you listening feel the same. So let me ask you a question. Where do you find stability? Do you place your trust in God that all shall be well in the end? I know that can be difficult to do in unstable times, so I want to reflect on the doctrine of divine immutability in this episode. After the Reformation, we reach the era of Protestant scholasticism. This time period produced great thinkers like Stephen Sharnock and Francis Turretin. Now, one of the interesting things about this time period is the way many systematic theologians would write about the divine attributes. For the most part, many of the Protestant scholastics, they would just repeat the standard classical theistic claims, though there are some very notable exceptions like Samuel Clarke and Isaac Newton. Though many of the Protestant theologians just repeat the classical divine attributes, there is an interesting common theme. 
During this time period, it was common to offer a devotional reflection on a divine attribute after it had been systematically articulated. So when it comes to the doctrine of immutability, the common devotional claim is about how we can confidently place our trust and assurance in the immutable God. God is our unchanging stable rock, and this should bring us great comfort. That's the constant claim from Reformed theologians, yet uh, Sorm Kierkegaard, he, he offers this really interesting twist. So according to Kierkegaard, the immutability of God is a comfort to the believer, but this is going to strike fear in the sinner. Now you might be thinking, why should the immutability of God strike fear in the heart of the sinner? Well, no matter how persistent you are in your sin, you cannot wait out the immutable judge. You can try to maintain uh, your sinful lifestyle. You can remain stubborn as all you want, but God's not going to relent. He will not just randomly change his mind. So according to Kierkegaard, the immutable God's judgment against sin will not be moved. Now, Protestant scholastics, they did not merely offer devotional reflection on the divine attributes. During this post-Reformation time period, it was also common to see theologians criticize the idea that God is mutable or changing. Theologians like Sharnock would say that a mutable God cannot be the basis for assurance or comfort. Why think a thing like that? Well, a mutable God, a changing God, well, he, he could change his mind on a whim. He might promise salvation uh, one day, but then arbitrarily change his mind later. That is the objection that theologians like Sharnock would raise against divine mutability. So here is the question that I ultimately want to address in today's episode. Are these Reformed theologians right about the devotional implications of immutability? In order to answer this question, we will need to take a deep dive into the debate between immutability and mutability. I will start by defining some terms. So consider the doctrine of immutability. This is the doctrine that is often misunderstood in contemporary scholarship. In my mind, many contemporary classical theists do not understand the doctrine at all. They often state the doctrine in weaker terms than the classical Christian tradition does. In order to help you understand what the doctrine of immutability actually says, I need to mention that the classical doctrine of immutability is meant to be systematically connected to divine timelessness. Whatever you say about immutability will need to be consistent with divine timelessness. So God is timeless if and only if God exists without beginning, without end, without succession, and without temporal location. As the, as the Reformed classical theist Paul Helm makes absolutely clear, a timeless God cannot stand in any kind of temporal relations with creation. And here's the important point. Whatever you say about immutability, it needs to be consistent with the claim that a timeless God lacks succession, lacks temporal location, and lacks temporal relationships. This is a point that seems to be lost on many of the new classical theists and internet Thomists. Thankfully, it is not a point that is lost on classical thinkers like Augustine, Boethius, and Peter Lombard. So Peter Lombard says that temporal beings, well, they're very easy to identify. Temporal beings are ones who change either intrinsically or extrinsically. I need to emphasize that temporal beings are ones who change extrinsically, because this is where new classical theists and internet Thomists get lost. New classical theists and internet Thomists often say that the immutable God can change extrinsically or undergo what are sometimes called mere Cambridge changes. 
I'm going to do a follow-up episode on the so-called Cambridge changes, where I will explain why Cambridge changes are inconsistent with classical theism. But for today's episode, I'm merely just going to mention that the suggestion that the timeless and immutable God can undergo Cambridge change, that is not remotely accurate to what the classical tradition says, and it's just conceptually confused. Now, as Peter Lombard makes clear, the immutable God cannot change intrinsically or extrinsically. Well, why? Well, there is something that Peter Lombard understands that many contemporary thinkers do not understand. If a being undergoes even mere extrinsic changes, that being is standing in temporal relations and undergoing temporal succession. In other words, extrinsic changes are inconsistent with divine timelessness. Now, the reformed classical theist Paul Helm, he understands this point. So he writes, and this is a direct quote from Paul Helm's book, The Eternal God. He says, An individual is immutable in the required sense if no temporal or spatial changes apply to that thing, not even temporal or spatial merely Cambridge changes. A temporal change occurs when the duration of an object is extended, its life prolonged, just as a real spatial change occurs when an object comes into fresh spatial relations with other things. The creator is immutable to the extent that he does not have even merely Cambridge temporal and spatial relations with other substances, much less real changes. Uh, okay, so that's, that's Paul Helm. So there you have a very clear statement from Paul Helm saying that the immutable God cannot undergo mere Cambridge changes. So what we have here are two classical theists who know what they're talking about. We've got Peter Lombard and Paul Helm both making this claim. And even critics of classical theism, like William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland, they agree that this is the classical understanding of divine immutability. So listen to what Craig and Moreland say. So this is a direct quote from them. So Craig and Moreland say, Divine timelessness or divine simplicity would require that God undergo neither intrinsic nor extrinsic change. For in either case, a relation of before and after would be generated by such changes, which would serve to locate God temporally with respect to those changes. Thus, God would have to be incapable of even the slightest alteration. So that's, that's Craig and Moreland. Here is the important lesson in all of this. The classical doctrine of divine immutability says that God cannot change intrinsically or extrinsically. So anyone going around positing these magical Cambridge properties of the classical God is just demonstrating that they don't know what they're talking about. Again, immutability means that God cannot change intrinsically or extrinsically. So that is immutability. What about divine mutability? Well, this is going to be a bit easier to define. Divine mutability says that God can change in certain respects, both intrinsically and extrinsically. So to be clear, God cannot change in his essence. This is why many contemporary authors will say that they affirm a so-called weak doctrine of immutability, because they affirm that God cannot change his essence. But I just think the term weak immutability, I just think that's unnecessary because nothing can change its essence. God's essential properties are unchanging because essential properties are not the sort of thing that can change. But God can change intrinsically and extrinsically as he exercises his essential power and his essential freedom to create a universe and interact with it. God changes from not acting to acting. That's an intrinsic change. God's knowledge changes as history unfolds. God knows what's happening right now. That's an intrinsic change. God changes by entering into covenants with his creatures, acquiring obligations through divine promises that he did not previously have. 
That involves both intrinsic changes through action and knowledge, but it also involves extrinsic changes as God enters into new relationships with his creatures. So let me be clear about something. Both immutability and mutability agree that God cannot change in his essence. Like, no one, no one's thinking that God's essence can change. Immutability wants to make a stronger claim. It wants to go further and say that God cannot change in any way, shape, or form. God cannot change intrinsically or extrinsically. Whereas anyone who affirms mutability wants to say, well, you know, hang on a second. God can change intrinsically and extrinsically to some extent as he freely interacts with his creation. So with these definitions before us, we can now ask which view is needed in order to have assurance in the promises of God. In order to place our trust in God, does God need to be absolutely unchanging, like Peter Lombard says? Or does God need to be able to change as the prophet Hosea says? The argument from perfection. Now, in order to wrap our minds around this question of finding assurance in God, we need to consider some arguments for and against each view. So let's look at some arguments in favor of immutability. So by far, the most common argument throughout Christian history is the argument from perfection to immutability. The argument from perfection to immutability goes like this. The argument asks us to consider two assumptions. Just make two assumptions, that's all. So here's the first assumption. God is perfect. I mean, that's, that seems like a really safe assumption to make, right? I mean, I mean, hardly anyone wants to deny that God is perfect. I mean, personally, I think that the concept of God just is that of a perfect being who is the single ultimate foundation of reality. And, and, and of course, as we've discussed on this show and as I've discussed on, in many of my publications, I mean, there are all sorts of debates over which divine attributes explain why God is perfect. But it is a very safe assumption to make that people are going to affirm that God is perfect. Whatever those attributes are that God has, God's going to be perfect. Everyone seems to make that assumption. And so, you know, thus far, I mean, this argument from perfection, it, it seems to be off to a very good start. Now consider the second assumption that the argument asks us to make. This is called the platonic assumption about value. It says that all change is for the better or worse. Now, that's a really strong claim about value, so let me repeat it in case you missed it. All change is for the better or worse. That is going to be more controversial than that first assumption, but I'll come to that in a minute. So with these two assumptions in place, here is how the argument goes. All change is for the better or worse. Since God is perfect, he cannot change for the better. I mean, think about it. You aren't really perfect if you can get better. Also, since God is perfect, he cannot change for the worse. Because again, I mean, think about it. If you can get worse, well, you don't really seem like you're perfect to begin with, right? Well, since all change is for the better or worse, and God cannot get better or worse, well, then it must be the case that God cannot change at all. And with that, we have just arrived at the classical doctrine of immutability. God cannot change in any way, shape, or form. That's the argument. What are we to make of the argument? Like, is, is this a good argument? 
Personally, I do not find this argument very persuasive. Here's why. Remember that the argument relies on the platonic assumption that all change is for the better or worse. Well, I mean, that assumption, it's, it's, it's false. All you have to do is show one example of a change that is value neutral. I mean, just, just one example of a change that is not for the better and not for the worse. And here you go. Here's an example. Imagine that God creates a universe where the only two things that exist are two electrons just spinning in the void. Like, that's it. That's all that exists. Just two electrons spinning in the void. Now, at one moment, the electrons are in particular spatial locations. The first electron is just to the right of the second electron. Now, at the next moment, the electrons change places. The first electron is now to the left of the second electron. Notice something about this example. The changes involved are, well, they're really boring. I mean, this is an incredibly boring thought experiment. Nothing about these changes can meaningfully be said to be better or worse. I, I mean, really, like, what's better or worse about electrons just changing their spatial locations, just endlessly spinning in the void? I mean, nothing's better or worse about any of that. And so here's the lesson in all of this. The reality of the situation is that the platonic assumption is false. It is false that all changes are for the better or worse. I mean, I mean, sure, look, some changes are for the better or worse, but it's false that all changes are for the better or worse. Now, William Hasker, he raises another problem for the argument from perfection to immutability. Hasker points out that the perfection of some things requires that the thing in question undergo change. So, Hasker gives an example. He says that the perfection of God requires that God's knowledge changes as history unfolds. Think about it this way. So, prior to creation, God exists all alone. I mean, surely in that situation, God's going to know, you know, that he exists all alone. Then, once God decides to create a universe, the sum total facts of reality, they change. The sum total facts of reality are that God exists with a bunch of cosmic stuff. And surely in that situation, God's knowledge will change because now God knows that he exists with a bunch of cosmic stuff. It would, I mean, it would be an imperfection if God's knowledge did not change in that way. It would be imperfect if God's knowledge did not change as it tracks reality. It is precisely because God is perfect in knowledge that God's beliefs must change in order to track the ever-changing sum total facts of reality. So far from implying immutability, I think that perfection demands that God has the ability to change in certain ways. Scripture and Immutability. 
Okay, so I just asked you to consider a philosophical argument for immutability. Now I want us to consider a biblical argument for immutability. Now you might be wondering why I didn't start with the Bible first. You know, isn't this a Christian show? You know, th there are several reasons for why I waited. I think it's important to understand what some of the options are before turning to scripture. I mean, sometimes people can miss things that are going on in the Bible when they are unaware of what the options are for interpreting various passages. Historically, there was a long period of time when Christian theologians thought that the strong doctrine of immutability was the only option, and they interpreted the Bible accordingly. People who affirmed divine mutability, or that God can change, they complained that this failure to see other options leads to a misinterpretation of the Bible. They say that with, the, with all of these options laid out on, on the table very clearly, people can come to the Bible with better eyes to see what is going on. So what does the Bible have to say about God's immutability? Theologians who affirm that God can change, they say that their position accurately captures what is going on in Scripture. And this is because the Bible sometimes portrays God as changing. For example, God was not always incarnate in Jesus Christ. As Galatians 4.4 tells us, God sent his Son when the right time came. God was not always sending his Son. This is something that God waited to do until the right time came. God the Son changed from not being incarnate to being incarnate. And God and the world have never been the same again. I mean, that's a big change in the life of God. And then Philippians 2, 7-11, it explains that God the Son did not consider his divinity a thing that we could grasp. So the Son made himself nothing and took the form of a servant. And in case if you're, you're wondering, I mean, taking on a new form is a change because the Son did not previously have that form. So the son became human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. I mean, how amazing is that? We worship a compassionate God who is willing to undergo dramatic changes by becoming human in order to demonstrate his unchanging love for us. And on the cross, we see the lengths that God will go in order to keep his promises. I mean, truly, we worship an amazing God. Yet there are a few passages in the Bible that say that God does not change. So we need to look at those. There are passages like Numbers 23.19, 1 Samuel 15.29, and Malachi 3.6. These verses say that God is not a man, that he should change his mind. Sometimes theologians take this as evidence for the strong doctrine of immutability. However, if you affirm immutability and say that God does not change in any way, you get a weird puzzle when you think about the way God changed in becoming incarnate. You get the claim that God does not change and the claim that God does change. And that's, that's a contradiction. Theologians who affirm divine mutability or divine change, they say that God can change in various ways. And so they maintain that the Bible does not give us a contradictory description of the God we worship. They say we need to take a closer look at, at what is going on in these different biblical passages. So consider Old Testament scholars like R.W.L. Moberly. Biblical scholars like Moberly say that when one takes a closer look at these unchanging passages, like Numbers 23, 1 Samuel 15, and Malachi 3, so Moberly says when you take a closer look at those passages, you can see that the Bible is really specific in the ways that God does not change. Each passage says that God is not a man that he should change his mind. In each case, the passages say that men are liars who do not keep their promises. Well, God's not like that. When God makes a promise, 
he, he will keep it. God's promises are they're, they're not empty lies. So advocates of divine change, they say that what these passages teach is that the promises of God are unchanging. Once God makes a promise, it is certain that God will keep that promise. So these biblical passages, they do not teach that God is completely and utterly unchanging. They simply teach that God will not change his mind about the promises that he has made. According to Old Testament scholars like Moberly and Terence Fretheim, what we learn from these passages is that when the Bible describes God as unchanging, it typically has God's trustworthy character in mind. This is precisely what proponents of divine mutability or divine change, I mean, that's what we've been saying all along. However, proponents of the strong doctrine of immutability will say that their view is also compatible with God having a trustworthy character. And in fact, they're going to say that this strong doctrine of immutability guarantees God's trustworthiness because God is utterly unchanging. I guess I can grant this point to like a classical theist. I suppose a completely unchanging God is trustworthy in his character. Though I have my doubts that an utterly unchanging God can freely make a promise, because freely making a promise entails acquiring an obligation that one did not previously have. In which case, freely making a promise logically entails that God changes. However, that's not the point that I want to press in this portion of the episode. The point that I want to press is that the strong doctrine of immutability cannot be consistent with certain biblical passages that explicitly state that God does change. So passages like Hosea 11. In the book of Hosea, God asked the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute. This marriage is meant to symbolize the relationship between God and Israel. God had previously made certain promises to Israel promises to bless them and make them prosper if Israel would remain faithful to God. But the, but the problem is <laughs> that's discussed in Hosea is that Israel, well, Israel was not faithful to God. Israel has gone off and they've worshipped all these false idols. As you, can, as you might imagine, I mean, Israel's unfaithfulness is, is deeply disturbing to God. When God asks Hosea to marry a prostitute, God is asking Hosea to understand the suffering that God is going through in the face of an unfaithful people. I, I want you to understand something here. This is something utterly unique among the prophets of the Old Testament. Typically, the Old Testament prophets are meant to symbolically represent Israel. But in Hosea, the prophet is asked to symbolically represent God so that we might get a glimpse into the inner emotional life of God. That's amazing. So what do we see in God's inner emotional life? As you read through the book of Hosea, you will see God say that he recoils at Israel's disobedience and that he has plans to pour out his wrath on Israel. I mean, I mean clearly God is emotionally upset by the situation. Yet as we come to chapter 11 of Hosea, God says something very interesting. God says that because he is not a man, he will change. I think that's worth repeating. I don't want you to miss this. Because God is not a man, he will change. I, I mean, that's odd. I mean, that's, that's, that's peculiar. Because earlier, what we saw, we saw these biblical passages explain that God does not change because he is not a man. But now we have Hosea saying that God does change because he is not a man. Well, hang on, what's, what's going on here? 
As Hosea explains, God has compassion for his people. Because of his compassion, God will change his plan of wrath to a plan of forgiveness. Stubborn men, humans like you and I, we don't change our, our, our wrath to forgiveness because we're stubborn. We lack compassion. But thankfully, God is not a stubborn man. God has a deep compassion that moves him to turn his wrath into forgiveness. Now, those who affirm mutability, that God can change, they're going to say this connects nicely with what we learned earlier. God does not go back on his promises to bless Israel. God loves his chosen people. He has promised to bless them. And out of compassion, he will respond to his people in the best way to ensure that his promises are in fact fulfilled. Sometimes that means that God will change his plan from wrath to forgiveness. Thus, it seems like the Bible is very clearly pointing in the direction of divine change or mutability. Silly Objections to Mutability. Okay, so we come to the final act of today's episode. I want us to consider some very common objections against divine mutability, against the claim that God changes. So here's the first objection, and I hear this one all the time. Not just online, not just on like the dumpster fire that is Twitter. I also hear this objection in academic settings. Call this the creature objection to divine mutability. The objection goes like this. Look, Ryan, you believe that God can change. Well, that's not God. That, that's a human. That's a creature. By asserting divine change, you've dethroned God from the status of the creator. You've made him a creature. You have made him an idol. That's the creature objection to divine mutability. Some of you are thinking, like, come on, can't, I mean, isn't that a straw man? Can't you, like, steel man this argument? Ah, man, I, I wish I could give more nuance to this argument, but I have never found any version with any nuance. Every version of this argument that I know of, every one that I've come across, it's nothing but a string of wild assertions. I think it should be easy to see just how wild these assertions are. So let's look again at what divine mutability is saying. So people like me, you know, I'm going to say that God can change. God can change. I know it sounds dangerous. I know, you know, it's, it's really dangerous to affirm biblical statements like that. But yeah, I think God can change. I say that God is a necessarily existent, immaterial being with attributes like omnipotence, omniscience, perfect moral goodness, and perfect freedom. I also say that the eternal God created the universe out of absolutely nothing. Is this God a human? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I don't know any humans who are necessarily existent beings who create universes out of absolutely nothing. I mean, do, do you know any humans that fit that description? Think about it this way. I am saying that the eternal God changes when he creates the universe. God changes from not doing anything to doing something. God changes from being all alone to existing with a bunch of cosmic stuff. 
does that kind of change somehow magically make God a creature? I mean, if you think that God changing when he freely creates a universe somehow makes God a creature, then I should think that you have a very poor understanding of what a creature is. I mean, typically a creature is not the sort of thing that makes all of contingent reality come into existence. There's a lesson to be learned from this. When people consistently push silly objections like this, they give us a reason to not listen to them anymore. Such bad arguments demonstrate that these people lack intellectual credibility. So I want to issue a challenge. When you come across someone who keeps pushing bad arguments like these, like just consistently pushes bad arguments like this, I challenge you to stop listening to them and instead give your attention to more credible sources. Okay, let's look at a different argument against divine mutability. This one comes from Stephen Sharnock, the, uh, the, the, the reformed theologian I mentioned earlier. So Sharnock claims that a God who can change is not trustworthy. Sharnock says that a being who changes in knowledge may make promises that are reasonable right now, but those promises might later turn out to be unfit to perform. Now, Sharnick just kind of—he just kind of asserts this. He just kind of just just get, like just states this sort of thing. He doesn't really give us any examples. But personally, I find the idea intuitive. I think I think there's something there. I mean, surely many of us have found ourselves in a situation that Sharnick is describing. So let me try to develop Sharnick's argument a bit for him. I think the idea is something like this. So a god whose knowledge changes over time might make a mistake. Say that God makes a promise at a particular time based on what he knows to be true at that time. At that point in history, it's, you know, it's, it's perfectly reasonable. And, you know, maybe it's even like really good to make that promise. But, you know, as history unfolds, unforeseen things happen that now make that promise maybe, maybe just impractical or maybe even immoral to keep. You know, the, the way like history unfolds just, it just you know, might just be the worst thing in the world to try to keep that promise. This is a common experience in our creaturely lives. You know, we've made promises that later on we realize, oh gosh, I'm not in a position to keep this promise. We experience this stuff. And surely we want to say that God is not subject to that kind of problem. Surely you're going to want to say that God's promises are trustworthy and they're not going to become impractical or immoral for God to keep in the future. I think that's the best way to develop Sharnak's argument. I think that's what he's trying to say. So ask yourself this. Is the mutable God, is the changing God subject to untrustworthy promises? I can't see how God would be. If you are a neoclassical theist like me, you're most likely going to affirm either a Molinist or a Calvinist approach to divine foreknowledge and providence. On Molinism and Calvinism, God's going to know the truths about the future of the universe that he's creating. God's knowledge of what is happening right now changes as history unfolds. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't know the future. I mean, the neoclassical theist can say that God's promises are based on what he knows the future will hold. So there's not going to be a worry that God will make a promise that will later turn out to be impractical or immoral to keep. In light of God's divine foreknowledge and providence, I mean, a changing God is perfectly capable of making trustworthy promises. So now that we have considered arguments for and against immutability and mutability, we have to ask our original question. Do we need God to be absolutely immutable in order to place our assurance in God? I mean, the Bible doesn't think so, but many Christian theologians disagree with the Bible on this point. 
So my dear listener, where do you stand? Where do you place your trust in these uncertain times? And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on philosophical theology.